Good afternoon, fellas. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for this food that we have already eaten uh, or are about to eat. We ask God that you would bless it uh, to nourish our bodies and us to your service. We thank you, Lord, for this church. We thank you for um, its ministry to us in so many ways. And we thank you for Greg Oliver and his wife Stacy and uh, his willingness to be here today and for the work that you are doing through him. Pray that you would uh, just connect our ministries today and connect our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. Um, guys, just before I uh, bring uh, my friend Greg up, just a couple of announcements, uh, things I want to uh, say to you. Uh, one uh, is that last night, if you were uh, not here, we uh, launched the uh, first edition of the Advent magazine. And I really wasn't, didn't have a lot to do with it, and I didn't know kind of what to expect. And I will tell you that I am stunned at the quality. Uh, Matt Schneider really put this together. Uh, Brandon Bennett uh, also was uh, had a major hand in it. And um, it is really, really impressive. They'll be available um, on Sunday at Rally Day, but they are here for you to take a copy. Uh, great articles, great art. It's just really, really good art. I mean, for art's sake. And it really gives the glory to the Lord and highlights some, some um, the ministries of the Advent in ways that um, only someone with a creative mind like Matt Schneider could uh, pull together. So, um, so I really commend this to you. I heard a couple of folks say that, they stayed up till midnight last night reading it, and it's just, it's very, very well done. Some great, not, I think what started as the idea was a sort of a glorified newcomer's booklet. It turned into a really a literary and arts journal, very, very high quality. Uh, so I just commend that to you. Uh, the men's hike, the fall men's hike, will be uh, October 22nd to the 25th. I commend that to you. If you have not been on a men's hike particularly, uh, if you have been, uh, you, uh, raise your hand if you have been on a men's hike. Uh, it is a great, great experience, and I think uh, almost with very few exceptions, these guys would uh, would tell you that uh, it was uh, definitely something to do. We've had about 60 guys go, and about 30 guys have been twice at least, so um so uh, we've got one guy who's been every single time. So just uh, really commend that to you. It's a, uh, physically demanding, uh, for sure, uh, but it, that's part of the greatness of it. It is super fun, spiritually edifying. I just hope that you will uh, consider doing that. Uh, it is it's a good idea to be in decent shape, but um, but I will, I'll shoot you straight uh, if you're interested in that. Um, so that is really what is going on. We want to, uh, I want to... Uh, just thank Greg Oliver for being here. Greg is the founder of Awaken uh, Recovery Ministries. It is a uh, ministry, especially uh, to the, um, it's an addiction ministry, but especially to those who are struggling in sex addiction. Uh, Greg and I met, Greg is a runner, and uh, I looked over uh, after, I think maybe my first run with this group, and uh, there was this guy with an incredible, uh, just, I mean, incredible physique, but also, so, but the, what happened, and Greg's an amazing runner. Yeah, right, right, he was. Uh, but um, but what caught my eye was this just wicked awesome tattoo uh, that he had, and I asked him about it, and he told me the story. There's a, there's a, a, a story, and he began to share his testimony with me uh, based on this tattoo, and so we, uh, we've been good friends uh, ever since. And that was, gosh, four years ago, I guess, about about four, maybe a little over four years ago. So, uh, but anyway, um, he has a lot to say to us, and I am. I just want to thank you for being here. I'm so glad uh, that you are here and uh, that he is here. So I'm gonna um, want to uh, let you know. 
Okay. I want to let you know that um, the Awaken Recovery Ministries is a uh, nonprofit um, support-based ministry. And if something strikes you in what Greg says today, if you want to know more uh, information about that or partner with him in that, um, that he would he would love to talk with you more about that. And he's got some uh, brochures and stuff on the table by the coffee. Uh, Greg, come on up. I'll say a prayer for you, and um, and you can tell us what you know. Um, Lord God, we just I thank you for. My friend Greg, I thank you for your story of grace and mercy in his life. And I pray, God, that uh, you would um, instruct us today, uh, not just about uh, addiction, although certainly about that, but also, Lord, about um, redemption and your hand uh, upon our lives and that uh, your trajectory and your mission and your plan and your grace. We ask all of this, Lord, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. we do okay or it seems like that's going to be on the verge of feedback so I don't know if we can make adjustments to that. it's pretty yeah it's pretty pretty hot so check check all right there we go yeah, I remember that day um, on the run uh, speaking with Joe, and we we had a conversation, I don't know if it was that day or on a future run, about one of the quickest ways to create awkward silence on a run is to say, uh, when somebody asks you, what do you do, say, I'm a pastor, or to say, I'm a sex addict, <laughs> or I'm a former pastor who's a sex addict. That'll really shut them up. Um, but uh, because, and Joe said, all of a sudden, people's minds are racing like, what have I said before I knew that was true about him that he was a pastor? But, you know, one of the things that was so refreshing to me about meeting Joe was that he was the latest in a line of people who made it very clear that they had experienced and understood and wished to, to, to be conduits of the grace of God. Uh, and understanding people's brokenness and that uh, God has made, has made a, a way for us to experience healing and restoration through our brokenness. So I'm going to start out just by telling you a little bit of my story. Um, and uh, I'm not going to take my shirt off and show you the tattoo, uh, but it's of a tree. The, the, tr the tree that's on my side, one side of it is dead branches, um, very dark. And as you get to the middle and come towards the front, then it's it's brighter, it's more alive, and there's new life and new leaves growing. And there are scripture references, one on either side of the tree. And the one on the dead side is a reference from Joel chapter 2 that uh, is the Lord saying, I'll restore the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. And then the scripture on the, on the new side is from Revelation 21 when Christ says, Behold, I'm making all things new. And so as I tell my story, hopefully you'll see that through the years where I was trapped in sin and addiction <clears throat> through those experiences that I don't believe were wasted to when God exposed it and to what he's done in the six and a half years since doing that, that there is a great deal of restoration and there's a, a great deal of newness to what he's bringing. So I'm 45 years old, and when I was six years old, I professed my faith in Christ as my Savior, and I began life as a Christ follower. I grew up in a home where both my parents were believers, and they took me to church. I can't remember a time in my life when I wasn't uh, in church in good, strong Bible-teaching churches. One of the things that was pretty typical 
excuse me, of my growing up years was that a lot of the focus on a lot of the teaching was on how did I behave myself. Um, good Christians do these things. Good Christians don't do these things. And whether it was the implicit or the explicit message, that was what I took away from a lot of the things that I was taught at home, in Sunday school, by youth leaders. It was that there are, there are two very distinct lists, and Christians do these things and they don't do those things. And so what I discovered is as long as I'm doing the things on the right list, then everybody's happy with me. Uh, God must be happy with me. Everyone is smiling. I'm proud of you is a comment that I'd hear a lot. And if I'm failing, if I'm doing some of the things on the, on the forbidden list, then I hear, well, I'm disappointed in you. And, and there's the frowns and there's the coldness. And that was just my perception as a child. And I'm realizing now as an adult how many of those impressions that I formed as a younger person that really kind of stayed with me, that, that shaped some of my beliefs that I held to as I lived my life. It wasn't, again, that, that all of these messages were explicit, like, by the way, if you fail, I'm going to reject you, I'm going to shun you, I'm going to give you the cold shoulder. It wasn't that it was that explicitly spoken, <clears throat> but that was what I took away from it. Now, when that began to connect with me and sexual things was when I was about 11 and I hit puberty and uh, discovered lots of things happening, discovered things that everybody discovers in puberty, and one of them being masturbation. One of them was not how to keep your parents from knowing that you've discovered that. And so in my house, um, the dynamic was when there are things to talk about of, of that nature, my dad really wasn't the one who handled those conversations. We would wrestle and he would, you know, take us to sporting events and things like that. But as far as having the heart to hearts, that was never one of his strengths. And so my mom took that as her responsibility. And the way that she handled figuring out that her son had learned how to masturbate was sitting me down uh, at age 11. I remember sitting on the orange ottoman in front of the armchair and hearing, now we know that you've discovered how to do this. That's wrong. It's dirty. It's bad. You need to stop because God is not happy with you when you do that. And that has stuck with me. I mean, that was 34 years ago because I'm 45 now. And I just remember the concept of when I do something wrong, God is not happy with me. And I wish I could say that, okay, well, that was enough motivation to keep me on the straight and narrow for the rest of my life, but it wasn't. I can remember one of my thoughts in that moment was, I need to do a better job of hiding this because I knew I wasn't going to stop. I didn't know how dangerous it was. I knew that it was something that I had discovered and that I enjoyed. And so my best solution was, if I'm not doing the right thing, I'll at least look like I'm doing the right thing. And that's kind of when I turned into a performer. Uh, either make it or fake it till you make it. And so my teenage years and growing up was kind of that story. I was the kid who sang in church from the time I was seven years old. Uh, I was the youth leader. I was the one who <clears throat> went on all the youth choir trips and all the missions trips. And the mothers of all the girls in the youth group wanted their daughters to date me because uh, I was the clean-cut Christian kid who didn't seem to do anything wrong. But it was because I did a very good job of keeping the parts of my life compartmentalized from one another. And so where I was failing, that was the part of my life that I kept isolated. Now, there's a lot of things in my life that I could categorize under the heading if I knew then what I know now. 
What I didn't know then was that something that seemed so normal, which was occasionally looking at pornography, uh, very frequently alleviating stress through masturbation, those things all seemed very normal. But what I didn't know was that I was learning a pattern of coping with other issues in my life with the wrong thing. I was using it as a go-to, and I was conditioning myself behaviorally, even spiritually, chemically, through uh, messing with my brain chemistry, uh, through the misuse of, of my sexuality. I was conditioning myself to medicate instead of really dealing with the things that were wrong. Of course, as a kid, I didn't know any of that stuff. As an adult for a long time, I didn't know any of that stuff. It just kind of seemed normal until at some point it didn't really feel normal anymore. So fast forward, came to Birmingham. I, I grew up in Huntsville, but I moved to Birmingham to go to Bible college at uh, Southeastern Bible College. And during the time that I was there, I met uh, a girl who had become my wife. She was a missionary kid who'd grown up in West Africa. And uh, we dated and, and really were fond of each other. And I thought, you know, I really like her. I think I'm going to marry her. And when I do, and when we can have sex whenever we want to, then I won't need to do this. I won't need to do this because I still had this false belief that what I was doing was because I was just too aroused or too charged up or whatever. And so I had this false belief that marriage was going to fix it. And marriage didn't fix it. Uh, we got married and sex didn't fix everything. In fact, it was kind of difficult for us. And that that created some tension, and so just like always, when I felt tension, when I felt pain, when I felt unpleasant emotions, I would just run for the medicine. I've likened addiction before in conversations and things that I've written to, if I have a tumor in my stomach and it's causing me pain, but I don't know yet what's causing the pain, my go-to is I'm gonna take four or five Advil because I, I, I feel pain, I want it to go away. And so I take those Advil, and it makes the pain go away for a while. But the problem isn't being cured because Advil doesn't cure cancer. And so after a while, when that deadening wears off, now the pain is worse. Because during the time that I didn't feel it, the, the root problem was growing larger. So now, in order to get that same numbing effect, i got to take twice as many Advil as I did the last time. And then more, and then more, and then more. And that was the nature of how addiction took hold in my life. I had a lot of fears and anxieties and stresses and kind of wounds that I carried with me through life, like we all do, but I did not have a system in place where I knew or chose to process those getting help, talking to people about it, being transparent. I just internalized all of it, and I didn't know what to do with all the things I was feeling, so my go-to was make it go away. So after years of learning how to do that, then getting married didn't help. Well, then it just escalated. Then the mid-90s came, and I got a computer with Internet access, and then the floodgates just opened. And the porn that had been a moderate problem became an absolute pervasive problem. It was like you know, going from a little spigot to standing in front of a sewer line. And it just became something that was controlling in my life. And over time, because I'm trying to fix a problem with something that was, wasn't designed to fix it, it works less and less, or the simulation worked less and less. And so in order to get the same simulation, I'd have to crank it up. Just like taking more and more Advil, I'd have to look at more and more pornography, allow my mind to wander more and more. And over the years, that cycle that became an addictive cycle just grew and escalated, and I began crossing lines that I had sworn at the beginning that I would never cross. 
Now, all this time, by the way, I'm in full-time ministry. I went to Bible college to, to be a, a music and worship pastor, and that's what I was. And I had served in one church in Louisiana for a few years, and then I served at a church here in Birmingham for over a decade. So the entire time all this is going on, I am living that compartmentalized double life and living one way that everyone can see and then keeping my secret room over here that no one could know about. And for a while, it seemed manageable. But over more and more time, the illusion that this was manageable and that this was sustainable began to erode. As it took more and more things for me to simulate actually doing something for my problem, my mind started to wander towards going from uh, isolated experiences between me and a computer to thinking about what would it be like to actually do some of these things that I'm watching. And I thought, well, I, I'll never do it, so it's okay for me to think about it. Manipulation is a strong part of addiction. I manipulated every person in my life. I man manipulated myself through convincing myself that it was okay to entertain these thoughts because I surely would never act on them. Well, in the fall of 2002, for the first time, I did physically act on them. And it was the first time that I ever committed adultery uh, on my wife. And over the next six years, it happened again and again and again. And towards the end of that season, when I had long since lost any illusion that this was doing anything good for me, I knew I was trapped, I knew that I was hopelessly addicted, I had begun praying about four years before God exposed everything that I would get caught. And the reason I prayed that is because for years I had prayed, God, fix me, just take this away. And he didn't answer that prayer. And so I thought, well, maybe if I pray that I'll be caught, then God will be so impressed by this brave, noble prayer that he'll just fix me instead. So my manipulation was even trying to extend towards manipulating God. That's kind of insanity. But there's a lot of insanity that takes place in the mind of an isolated, compartmentalized, addicted person. By the way, I, I'm saying addicted a lot, and I'm talking about things that contribute to it. What I want to just pause for a second and be very clear on is that none of the things that I'm saying do I want them to give the impression that I'm attempting to remove any responsibility because I was responsible for my choices. There are people who had similar experiences to me who didn't make the choices that I did and who have not become addicted to pornography or drugs or alcohol or gambling or what, what have you. And so to say that I have found over the years an explanation for why things happen as they did is in no way to say that it's, it's an excuse. Just thought it's kind of worth, worth mentioning. But God redeems it all. So anyway, I prayed that prayer that, that God would cause me to be exposed, and it was another four years before he answered that prayer. And by the time he did, I was living a pretty fatalistic existence. Um, I believed that I had crossed so many lines that I could never come clean with anybody, because if I did, life as I knew it would be over. I knew I'd lose my job. I feared I might lose my family. But what I feared worse than that was that I wouldn't lose my wife through divorce because I didn't really think that she would divorce me, but I thought that it would ruin her life forever. And so I thought the best thing is for me to just keep it to myself, allow her to just continue in her blissful ignorance of what I've done, and let me just run out the clock. How's that for a way to live? And I was 38, so I had a lot of years potentially left. Maybe not so many, though, had God not intervened because I know that had he not this eventually would have been the death of me. So 
around the turn of the year of 2008 to 2009, uh, I sent an email from my phone to somebody I was going to hook up with. And I had gotten really, really good at covering my tracks. I had a dummy email account that I used for things like that. But for some reason, for some reason, I, I believe it was the Lord, I sent the email and it went out from my church email account, which was my real identity. This is who this guy really is. Because I was using a fake name, again, covering my tracks as best I could. And I knew that that had happened. And at that point, I kind of just had a numb, que-sera-sera idea of, of what that meant. Like, well, there's nothing I can do about it now. And, and weirdly enough, I kind of just forgot about it. And about a week later, um, it became clear through, um, through an email that came to the, all the pastors of the church where I was on staff that something was up. Um, and I, I, I suspected that probably the information had, had been brought to them, and it had. And so uh, that was the beginning of uh, the, be the beginning of the beginning of my recovery, because when I suspected that I was about to get caught, I thought, well, based on that information that I sent, now, if everything between me and that person comes out, that only represents maybe 15% of what I've actually done, and I'll maybe admit to half of that and then deny the other half, and then I'll just, okay, I'll take my lumps, I'll get fired, but I'll, I'll control the damage, and no nobody has to know about the rest of this. I'll get fired, I'll get my consequences, I'll get into counseling, I'll learn a bunch of stuff, and I'll just privately apply it to all the stuff that nobody ever needs to know about. Still the manipulator. That mind of the addict is still going crazy. And after about six days, God made it very clear that, Greg, if I'm going to bring any of this out, do you really think I'm going to be content not to bring all of it out? And he just got me to a point in my spirit where I couldn't live with it anymore. And about six days after the initial exposure, I confessed everything to my wife and then confessed everything to the leaders of the church. And that's when recovery really began for me. What it looked like was... For the first time in my life, being in a place where when somebody asked me a question, I didn't have to think about my answer first. And that was really cool. That was new. I had never been in a place where when someone asked me a question, I didn't instantaneously think about what lies I have already told that I need to make sure not to contradict, what plans I've made that I need to make sure that I leave allowance for. It was unbelievable the mental gymnastics that I had to do constantly every waking moment, and it was exhausting. And so now to not have to do that was so freeing. In fact, one, one night, my wife and I were up late talking and uh, actually folding clothes, and she said, you've got a funny look on your face. What's going on? And I said, I just realized that, that there's not anything I have to hide anymore, and that's really I don't know what to do with that. So it was really cool. And, and God brought some people into our lives who spoke grace and the gospel and who did not judge. I, I did have consequences. I did lose my job. Uh, there were some relationships that we had that we thought were very close, and they didn't survive. Uh, a lot of people didn't know what to do with me. The church where I'd been on staff didn't really know what to do with me because we wanted to heal and go through a restoration process in the church, and they obviously had a lot of trust issues because I'd been betraying or deceiving them for, for 10 years. And so there have been some difficult things, but I've learned a lot about the gospel. And in people, having the experience of sitting across from someone at a table, telling my whole story, and having them not flinch, not jump up, not run, but instead say, I'm so sorry that you felt like you had to carry that your whole life by yourself. I'm so 
honored that you would share your story with me, and I love you, and I've never thought more of you than I do right now, and I just, I'm so thankful to be, to be your brother. It was just overwhelming, and in hearing how people with gracious hearts responded to me, I was able to finally reconnect to understanding that that's the Father's heart for me, that God was not interested in punishing me because he's already punished my sin when he put it on Christ on the cross. So his discipline for me was loving. It was to be restorative. God wasn't angry with me. God wasn't distant, and that's made all the difference. Those are some of the things that I began to learn, and it's been six and a half years, and I continue to learn them. But isolation was just one of the strongest strongholds that the enemy had in my life, believing that nobody would understand. And once God pulled that rug out from under me, I began to realize that everything I'd thought about that was wrong. Um, in, the, in the time that we've got left, and I know I, I took longer on my story than I meant to, so I got to kind of breeze through this. One of the things that I realized that I was looking for, and I alluded to it earlier, was I was looking to meet legitimate needs in my, in my life, but I was looking to meet them through illegitimate means. And I think that's what happens in addiction. Um, one of the best books uh, that I believe has been written from a Christian perspective on pornography and sexual sin is a book by Michael John Cusick called Surfing for God. And in it, he has a section where he talks about the broken promises of pornography. Um, and, you know, pornography is one of the most pervasive um, forms of addiction and sin that's grabbing men within the church and outside of the church today. If your addiction, if you're persistent sin struggle is something else, I think you're going to hear things that are going to transcend that. But for me, it was porn for, uh, some surveys say for 70% of men in the church, it's a persistent problem. And so some of the things that we're looking for, we're looking for validation of our manhood, sexual fulfillment, intimacy, passion, life, power, comfort, and care. And those are all good things. Those are all good desires. The problem is pornography we don't find it there because it promises validation of our manhood without requiring any strength of us. And some, sometimes we find as men a lot of insecurity in trying to feel like a man in the presence of a woman. And pornography doesn't ever tell us that we're not good enough. Pornography doesn't point out the things that we're doing wrong or tell us to cut our toenails or, you know, clean our, our, clipping, or our shaving clippings out of the sink or just shake our head and look at us in disgust. And so we can feel like a man but it's not, it's not requiring anything of us. It promises sexual fulfillment without relationship. Um, that's one of the reasons why Ashley Madison was so powerful for so many people. Life's short, have an affair. There's a billboard that Kusick uh, writes about in Denver where he lives that uh, was an advertisement for a porn store. It said, uh, cheaper than dating. And the whole, the whole thing is, look, why waste your time trying to build a relationship with a real woman? What you really want is sexual release. Well, you can get that on your own. It promises sexual fulfillment without relationship. promises intimacy without requiring risk and suffering. And intimacy is something that I mistakenly thought was gained through sex. But really, sex is an expression of an intimacy with my wife that should have already been there, and it's built in other ways. And that requires risk and suffering. Porn promises this simulation of intimacy that's not real. promises passion in life without connecting to your soul. It promises power over women without responsibility and humility. And it promises comfort and care without depending on other people. I wish I could spend more time, but I would really highly recommend the book because he, he details more uh, and fleshes it out more. But see, all of those things 
on the left-hand side, those are good, good desires. Those are God-given desires for our life. But it requires things of us. And the reason why we don't experience those and why sometimes we settle for the substitute of porn is because all of the things on the right-hand side require vulnerability out of us. And that's something that I had a very, very difficult time doing because when I'm vulnerable, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know that it's going to turn out the way that I want it to. There's risk of rejection. And when I think about that, I felt a lot of fear. Fear was a driving force for me. And that fear sourced out of a belief that I carried. See, what if for people who struggle with addiction, whether it's to sex and pornography, whether it is to alcohol or drugs or gambling or food or whatever it is, what if we've been spending all of our time saying, how can I stop this behavior? When really that's not the key issue. So where should our focus be? A lot of times it's on the behavior. I believe that it really should be focused on the belief that's driving the behavior. So what did I believe? In the, in the little bit of time we've got left, I want to use an analogy. And this is from a book uh, called The Cure. And it's by John Lynch, Bill Thrash, and Bruce McNichol. Uh, originally called, came out as a book called True Face. It was repackaged as The Cure. And I would highly recommend the book um, because it helped me to understand uh, the, dif- the differentiation between what's my motive for serving God. Imagine you're walking through the forest and you come to a split in the road. There's a signpost, and one of the directions says pleasing God, and one of them says trusting God. Well, I'm confused because those both sound pretty good. I want to do both of those things, and so I've got to make a decision. Which way am I going to go? Well, trusting God, that sounds decent, but I don't really know what do I do in that situation. So pleasing God, now I'm used to that. That sounds like something where I might have a list. So I think I'm going to go down that road. So I go down the road of pleasing God, and I come to a a building, and there's a door, and there's a big sign on the door that says, striving hard to be all God wants me to be. Yes, that's how I grew up. That's what I had nurtured into me. You need to do your best. You need to do the things on this list. And the handle on the doorknob says self-effort. So that's the vehicle to get in that room. So I go in that room, and I find myself in a room filled with smiling people. Someone walks up to me as the hostess and says, welcome to the room of good intentions. How are you? And I say, um, well, I'm, you know, I'm okay. I'm, I'm kind of struggling with it. She stops me. Somebody walks up, and they hand me a mask. Mask, and I look around. I realize that most of the people in the room are wearing a mask. So I'm like, well, I guess I need to put a mask on. And I say, well, I'm, I'm fine. How are you? Oh, we're fine. We're doing great. Job's going fantastic. The kids are just are on the honor roll. Marriage couldn't be better. Things are really, really good. So I'm learning now that everybody else seems to be doing well. I seem to be the only one who's struggling. So maybe until I figure this out, I need to just, I need to present myself as doing, doing okay too. And the longer I try to keep up that facade and wear that mask, when I know that that's not the way things really are, the more and more discouraged I get. So after a period of time living in that room, I, I just realize I can't do it anymore. So now I go back down the path. Uh, oh, by the way, there's a, there's a big banner in that room that says, working on my sin to achieve an intimate relationship with God. That's what I've been trying to do my whole life. I've been trying to work hard enough to gain that intimacy that I've always wanted with the Father. And it doesn't seem to be working in the room of good intentions. So I go back down the path, and I say, well, maybe I'll try out the trusting God. So going down that path, I come to another room, and the sign on that door says, living out of who God says I am. And the, the handle has a, a marker that says humility. That's the entryway into that room. So I go into that room, 
And I'm welcomed by another hostess who says, welcome to the room of grace. How are you doing? And I say, well, you really want to know? I'm doing terrible. I can't stop looking at pornography. My marriage is falling apart. My kids hate me. They're rebellious. Uh, I'm on the verge of losing my job, and I have chronic halitosis. So how's that for you? And somebody from the back of the room goes, is that all you got? And they start listing their struggles and their sins. And and they're like, you got to do better than that if you want to impress us. And the hostess looks at me and smiles and says, I think they're trying to say that you're welcome here. And I realize now as I look at the wall here and I see a banner that says, standing with God, my sin in front of us, working on it together. This is different. This is different than trying to please God because this is the gospel that says that God's already done the work. God is with me. And now, as we still want to address and deal with the sin that's in my life, I'm not doing that on my own. I'm not doing it to try to achieve that relationship with him. Real quickly, this is just another example. Say this pit is me and the sin that I've gotten myself into. And I see God as being up here. This is me striving to be all that God says. And all the supplies to build my way out of this, a ladder or stairs or whatever, they're up there with God. And so I spend day after day, you know, season after season, trying to be good enough and I jump as high as I can, and it just doesn't work. But if I begin to believe the gospel that I'm going to live out of who God already says I am, then I'm going to realize that not, I'm not working on my sin to achieve that relationship, but I'm accepting that by having placed my faith in Christ, that that relationship is already there, that God has come to me, that the gospel says that he initiated the connection and the reconciliation, standing with God, my sin in front of us, working on it together. And now with God's resources, the way out of this sin trap and this addiction is possible. And so now when I make progress, it's because I, my life is hidden with Christ in God. Some of the things I'm trying to do in either of those scenarios may be the same things, but what's changed is my heart now. It's not all up to me to fix myself because I can't do it. I've proven that I can't do it. Now I'm accepting the truth that in Christ, even as I'm cleaning up after acting out, as hard as that is to imagine, God looks at me and he sees the righteousness of his son. If I believe that, then the behavior is going to begin to change. If I believe who I really am, then the behavior is not going to have as great a hold on me. So finally, the question is, how can we find freedom if we start to transition? Well, together is the main answer. We can't find it in isolation because Hebrews 3.13 says, encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you are hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And that's exactly what happened in my life, in my mind. It happens in the mind of any believer, anyone who is caught in an addictive sin struggle. So I've got to allow people to speak the truth to me. There's a, a, a phrase that a friend of mine came up with. It says, the truth plus transparency equals transformation. So when I learn how to tell the truth and how to be transparent that I'm not okay and let other people walk with me, that's when things are going to change. So things like safe community, having a place where we can confess. I put accessibility next to accountability because accountability oftentimes has a negative connotation. I like to think of an accountability relationship where I've given someone access to know my heart, to know what's pushing those buttons, what's driving that behavior, so that it's not, well, how many times did you do this this week, or how many times did you do that this week? It's, tell me what's going on in your heart. Why is it that you believe that was your best option? Then I'm, we're able to focus on the gospel and not just the behavior. Therapy is a great option because there are some dots that needed to be connected in my life that I didn't understand I wasn't qualified to do myself. 
support. If you feel like you are addicted, there are support communities for every type of addiction, process or substance. And those are great places to be able to share from your heart and not be judged because there are people who understand. And as Christians, we can exercise 2 Corinthians 1 where we offer the comfort to other people that we ourselves have experienced in Christ. And there's a lot of resources. Um, I know I'm running up against the end of our time, so if there are questions about what those are, I'd be more than happy to talk to you. We got a few minutes? Okay, okay. Um, but these are some things that I discovered in my life were keys to finding lasting freedom. And not one of these things happened with me by myself. <clears throat> the only thing that ever happened when I was by myself was getting in deeper, believing the lie, and getting more and more hopeless. Something that broke my heart was when I heard about John Gibson. John was a seminary professor at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and a pastor whose name was on the Ashley Madison list. And six days after that list came out, John committed suicide. August the 24th, he killed himself because he believed in the moment that that was his best option. And the reason why he believed that was because the only voice he was hearing was the lie that his own inner critic and that his spiritual enemy was screaming into his ear. The thing that hurt the most as I watched this CNN video was when the interviewer was talking to his wife and his son and his daughter. You know what I kept hearing from them? He extended grace to so many people, and it just hurts to, to, to see that he couldn't see that people would have extended it back to him. His daughter said, the thing that really is the hardest for me to deal with is that he didn't think that I could love him enough to walk with him through this. And his wife saying, this love is powerful enough Love would have been strong enough. It's not worth the loss of a husband and a father. It doesn't merit that. And those are messages that John will never be able to hear because he kept himself in isolation. And I know full well that nothing that I can say, nothing that any church leader can say can make someone be ready. But I think it's important that we say it because to the person who is struggling, who is isolated, who is trapped in addiction, if we can at least hear the message, there is safety. You can confess your sin and your struggle and life will not be over. Then when God brings us to that point where we can't live with it anymore or when he's chosen to expose it, we know where, who we're going to go to, don't we? I knew exactly who I was going to go talk to first because it was a man who had been in my position in a different church who had been fired for the same thing and I had seen from a distance him recovering. So I picked up the phone and I called him. And we met, and he was the first one to speak grace to me, and he became my sponsor and has become a huge influence in my life. James 5.16 exhorts the church to confess your sin to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. In the specific context, it's, it's indicating physical healing, but I think there's a broader application for us. I think that when we live in a culture where we are free to confess without fear of condemnation, without fear of rejection or shunning, then we are going to find the kind of healing that we need. Sometimes, in my experience, the best way of reconnecting to God's heart has been to see it modeled in a flesh and blood human person in front of me. And that's what we can be for one another. Who are the relationships in our life? Who are the people that we could go to when our life is falling apart? Not our Facebook friends or our Twitter followers, but the real life flesh and blood people that we can say, I'm falling apart and I don't know what to do because we trust that they're going to walk with us. I think that's important. I've experienced that and I've found it. God has revealed himself to me through that. 
And I hope that whatever the struggles are that, you know, in a room like this, all of us carry something in with us, that we have those people or that we will commit to find those people and ask God to show us that there is hope. So I appreciate you listening, hearing my story, and uh, I pray it's been encouraging. I, I'll stick around and, and speak with anybody if you have any questions afterwards. But thank you so much.